beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory full of grace and truth. Hey, good morning. We're glad you're here. It's a beautiful Sunday. Sun's out. Snow's melting. Turn back to ice tomorrow, so we got that going for us. Um, Hey, will you stand with me as we dive into John 17? We're going to look at what's called the high priestly prayer. It's the entire chapter of John 17. We're going to zone in on a certain part of it today, though, and hopefully you'll see that the invitation in Jesus' prayer is actually an invitation to us and for us. So we're going to look at verses 15 through 23, but I would encourage you to read this entire chapter sometime today just to understand everything that's happening in this moment. So starting at verse 13, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them away from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I also send them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, so that they themselves also might be sanctified in truth. I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and you love them just as I loved you. Father, we thank you for this, this prayer of Jesus. We ask that you would press it deep into our hearts. Let us see your desire and your will for us, and pursue that. Desire it. Seek after it. And allow you to make this a reality for us. And we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. There is a uh, Austrian Jewish philosopher who uh, lived from 1878 to 1965. He wrote mostly about um, relationships and communication. And he came to the conclusion that relationships tend to form from one of two orientations or mentalities or perspectives. He called these two things the I it orientation and the I thou orientation. Simply put, in an I-it orientation, we tend to view others in terms of what they offer us, what they can bring into our lives. Now, in I-thou type relationships, it's more about connection, about shared desires, and seeing others as valuable as an individual, not just as objects to help us fulfill our personal wants and goals. And here's why I'm telling you that. Because when I look back on my journey of faith, I think I started with an I-it orientation towards God. 
And that's an orientation that's very transactional. It tends to be all about, if I do this for you, then you will do this for me, or you did this for me, so I must do this for you, and if we can keep the transaction ledger balanced, then we will be good. Does anybody else feel that in their relationship with God at times? And I don't think I'm the only one. I think many of us have been in that spot or are in that spot or started in that spot where we come to God more in an I-it orientation rather than an I-thou orientation. And that's where our journey of faith tends to begin for most of us. So we learn that Jesus died for our sins so that we can live with God for all eternity. So the undertones of that are transactional. Do you see that? Jesus did this, so you get this. Then our obligation is to live for him because he died for us. Because you did this for me, I must respond by doing this for you. And all of that is true. He did die for our sins so that we could live with him. And we do need to live differently because of what he did for us. But that doesn't get to the deepest desire of God. It doesn't get to the place of greatest freedom for us or to the deepest longing that Jesus has. And so every one of those things, God's greatest desire and our highest freedom and Jesus' deepest longings are actually found right here in John 17 what's called his high priestly prayer. Now, I want to give you a little context, okay? So John 17 is happening, most scholars think, either in the upper room after the Last Supper or in the Garden of Gethsemane. I even wonder if this may be the prayer that Jesus prayed when he asked Peter to come with him and pray and other disciples to come with him and pray, and they fell asleep. I wonder if this may be the prayer. But here's what's going to happen. After this prayer, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and after this prayer, they are going to show up and arrest him, and he's going to die. And so in short, that kind of makes these words some of his last words. And last words are always important. But his last words here in this prayer for us are of utmost importance if you want to follow Jesus. And here's why. Because he's telling us his desire for his disciples, what he wants for them. And you and I are in this prayer. So what he wants for them is also what he wants for us. He speaks to the Father in an I-thou way, a relationship between two persons. And he wants that same thing for us. He wants us to be able to come to God. Not in an I-it, I-object way but in an I-thou way, in a me-in-you kind of way. His words show that he clearly wants that orientation for each of us in our relationship with God. And so here's what I want to show you today. I want to show you that in John 17, number one, Jesus is praying for all of us. I want to show you what he's seeking in this prayer. And I, finally, I want to show you how to pursue what he wants for us as a lifestyle for you. And so to do all that, we gotta go to the logical place, the ending, and start there and work our way back. Listen to these verses in verses 20 to 23. I am not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? That's all of us. Every one of us believes in Christ because of the word of the apostles, because of their testimony. The church would have died if they hadn't done what they were called to do. And so 2,000 years later, we stand here because of them. 
So that they may be, may all be one. Huh. He's talking about us now. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Have you ever thought about that? That is not an I-it relationship. That is an I-thou relationship, person to person. So that the world may believe that you sent me, the glory which you have given me, I have also given to them. Again, he's talking about us. The very glory that the Father gave him, he has given to us. So that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them just as you loved me. So in verses 6 through 12, Jesus is asking this for his disciples In verses 20 through 23, he's asking that for all of us. And not just all of us here, but everyone who has ever believed. He's thanking the Father that the disciples have been given truth. And he's asking God to keep the disciples, to hold them in that truth after he leaves. Then he asks the same things of God for us. As I read John 17, I wonder if the face of every person who would ever believe in Jesus ran through his mind. I wonder if as he prayed, did he see your face? Did he see my face? Because these words are deeply personal, not theological. These words are person to person. They're not just about theology. He's not speaking simply of a desire for us to go out and spread his good news or to convert non-believers to his faith or to do great things in his name. He's speaking of persons, real persons that have worth and value and that he desires. You are one of those persons. That's you and I in the context of these last words of Jesus in this great high priestly prayer. That's everyone for the last 2,000 years who has believed in him. That's everyone who will believe in him until he comes back. Now it gets even more personal with his words here. Listen to this. Back to verse 21. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus' relationship with his Father was very deeply personal. It was intimate. It was a union of desire and will and purpose and love. And then here he prays that just as he is in the Father and the Father is in him, may we be in them. Do you see his desire here? His desire isn't simply for us to be saved and not go to hell. His desire is for us to literally be in the Trinity. 
but not just those of us at Temple Baptist Church in 2023, but all believers throughout all time. The prayer of Jesus is that we, all believers, would be in an I-thou, person-to-person relationship with God, with the Trinity, literally in the God who is three persons. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2.2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We as believers are called to be united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And why are we called to that? Because we are invited into living in union and oneness with God exactly as Jesus lived in that with the Father. Do you see that this isn't so much about us as believers being united as it is about living in union with God? And if we do that, then we will be united as believers? You'll be as close to a Christian who died 500 years ago and one who may be born a thousand years in the future as you've ever been to anyone who you now know. So that's where we are in this prayer. Do you see us in this prayer? Do you see us in Jesus' prayer? And now let's talk about what he's seeking for us. Well, as I said, he's simply seeking union with God, oneness with God in the Trinity. The exact same union and oneness that he shared with the Father on earth, his dying prayer is that we, all believers throughout all of time, would be one with each other, with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. And that can never be realized in theory. That can never come about through a transaction. If I approach God transactionally, I am hindering my ability to be one in Him, with Him, with you. It never happens in an I-it orientation towards God, which I think many of us have had at some point in our faith. We felt as though we go to God as an object. And there's no transaction in redemption. I know that might sound a little harsh, and it might sound like it flips some things over, but hear me out on this. It's not a transaction, it's a removing and replacing. All done by God, (laughs) not done by me. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 1.30. But it is due to him that you are in Christ. Due to who? Due to God. It is the work of God. He takes us out of the world as Jesus prayed in John 17 when he said, I am leaving this world and places us in God, in Christ, in the Trinity. It is, but it is due to him that you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's not due to a transaction. It's due to the grace of God. And here's what's happening in this. It's a word that, that I, I hate saying because I don't think I pronounce it right, but I don't think any of you probably know how to pronounce it either, so it doesn't really matter. But it's this word, inputting. I think it might be imputing. If you know for sure, tell me afterwards. Um, but don't laugh because I said inputting. But listen to this. 
This imputing and putting is our righteousness, or excuse me, our unrighteousness and our unholiness and our lostness are replaced, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his righteousness, his sanctification, and his redemption. They're imputed to us, in us, placed in us on account of Christ. Do you see how that is not a transaction? It's a removal and a replacement at God's hand, which is exactly what Jesus is praying for his disciples in John 17, 6 through 12, and then he prays for us in verse 20. And here's why that matters, because redemption, eternal life, is living in God, intimately, deeply in union, just as Jesus and the Father are one. I cannot do that if there is any unrighteousness, unholiness in me because God is perfect. To be in God, I must be perfect. To be made perfect, I must have all of those things removed from me and the quality and nature and essence and character of Jesus placed in me. That's why we're saved. <laughs> to be in God. And so here's what happens. When I approach God in an I-it orientation, asking him what I must do because of what he did for me, I'm asking him to do something, from, to take something from me. My efforts, my goodness, my, my deeds that are positive and loving, all the things I can look at that I've done or do that I say are good, I'm asking him to accept those as the means by which he puts me into himself, which is to deny Christ. It's to discount what Jesus did. And so when we go to God and say, God, what do you want from me? Instead of saying, Lord, tell me what you want for me. When we approach God with that mentality, we're actually flirting with an I-it orientation towards God, and it becomes an obstacle to union with God and in God. And I think all of us at some point or another in our journey of faith have been taught to pray that way. Go to God and ask him what he wants you to do. Ask him what he wants from you. Ask him what he wants you to give him. And the problem is at that point, I'm beginning to drift into this I-it kind of relationship. You are object, I am person. I will come to you as an object of worship, a source of power, a place of provision, but not as a person. I can never be one with an object. It's not possible. And so this all leads us into addressing this last question that's in Jesus' prayer in John 17. So my hope is that at this point, you recognize and acknowledge that Jesus was praying for you and me. Do you guys get that? Do you see it? This prayer was him praying for us 2,000 years ago. And you see that what he's asking of the Father is for union with us, us in him. The same union that Jesus himself had with his Father. Do you see that? That's his desire for us. We would be one with the Father just as he is one with the Father. It's a shared union with all believers that we would all be one in Christ, in God. 
And then that leads us to this final question. How do I pursue this union with God and with other believers as a lifestyle? Because that's a big, huge question, isn't it? Does anybody want that? You want that lifestyle of oneness and union with God, with each other? I think that that's a a world-changing idea if we can figure it out. And that's why I told you about Martin Buber in the first place. Because I believe that we're generally conditioned to pray as if we're in an I-it relationship with God, which is where all this comes down to is prayer. Jesus' prayer was not an I-it prayer. It was an I-thou prayer. I think all of us have been generally conditioned to approach God as an object, not as a person in prayer. And so here's what I mean by that. We go to him and say, you have all these things, whatever it may be, and I need, so tell me what I must do to get you to give me what I need. Anybody ever prayed in that style before? I think we all have. But do you see how that's an I-it relationship? That's a vending machine God. I put my dollar in, I want my Coke. And then the Coke doesn't come out, and what do we do? We shake it, and we kick it, and we hit it. We do that with God. We do that with God when we're taught to pray this way, when we pray this way. Think about how many times you've said or felt that it was difficult for you to pray, to just go to God, that, you've, that you said, you don't know what to say, or I don't even know how to, how to approach him. Have you ever felt that way about yourself? Have you ever stood in front of the mirror and thought, I have no idea how to speak to this person? No, why? Because you're one. You are in yourself. Wouldn't it make sense then? I wouldn't have any struggle going to God in prayer if I was one with God, if I was in God. It would be the same as coming to myself. But recognizing that when I get there to myself, he doesn't exist anymore. All I've got is Jesus. He is that life. Think of all the times you've heard other people say, I can't pray, I don't know how to pray, it's hard to pray, I just can't go to God right now. Because, fill in the blank, I've done this, or I thought that, or I want this, or I haven't been to church in a while, whatever it is. All of those feelings are reflective of an I-it orientation towards God. And then in his high priestly prayer, we see him approaching God as a person with an intimacy and closeness. We see him approach God because of his union with God and sinking to strengthen that union. I wonder if this was the prayer he prayed in the garden because we tend to think that when Jesus was sweating blood in the garden, it was out of this angst of I'm going to be crucified. I wonder if it was out of this angst that we weren't going to get it. I wonder if our failure to see that he wants us one in him and with him is what caused him to sweat blood. I wonder if he was laboring that intensely for us. And so our approach to prayer is tainted by the influence of the I-it orientation of every relationship in our world. That's our modern life. Most of our relationships are I-it, not I-thou. We've become people in our society who seek reciprocity and functionality more than we seek oneness and union with other people. Think about the last time you were in a restaurant and found out the waiter's name. 
It's not what they're there for. They're not there to be a person. They're there to be a server. The person you call up on the phone when you have a problem at the bank, they're not there to be a person. They're there to fix your problem. Anybody talk to an airline lately? I'm still not convinced they are persons, but. But do you see how everything in our lives conditions us to deal with each other in a way that is functional? What can you do for me? And who you are becomes irrelevant. Don't you think that has spilled in Western culture from our mindset towards each other into our mindset towards God? It happens that way. I think this I, it orientation is the cause of the majority of divorces, the majority of broken family relationships, and the ruined friendships that are all around us. Because it's a mindset of I'm not getting what I want or need, therefore I must move on. Has anybody ever talked to anybody who left the faith that had that mentality? I tried God. I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't get what I needed. So I moved on. Well, you were never going to get what you wanted because he can only give you what he wants for you, which is union with him. And you didn't want that. You wanted that cosmic vending machine, not a person. This I-it mentality is kept alive and getting worse in our culture. And, And he said this five decades ago, but Martin Buber says what's keeping it alive is that we view our desires as sacred objects. Do you see that in our world today? Once I have a desire, I have to pursue it at all cost. And woe be to those who get in my way. We never stop to ask, should I even want this? I just know what I want. But the question is, should I want it? That's called living below our inheritance in Christ. Because there's some things, as children of the king, as people who are one in God, we just shouldn't want. But once our heart or our mind says, look at this, look at this glittering vice, and we go, oh yeah, I want that. Never stop and say, should I? See, I think we all approach God this way at times. But I also think that this I-it orientation that seems to be under the surface of every relationship that we have in our world today is also the source of frustration in prayer. I don't think we pray like Jesus because of this. Do you want a prayer life that's freer, that's more intimate, that's actually connected to God? If you want that, then keep this quote from Oswald Chambers in the front of your mind. Listen to what he said about prayer. The point of prayer is not to get answers from God, but to have perfect and complete oneness with him. Isn't that easier to ask for? Isn't that easier to seek than trying to figure out all the things that you need that might solve what you perceive to be the problems in your life? Go pray. Well, I don't know what to pray. Well, go ask for oneness. But I'm not sure oneness is going to resolve my job situation. It may not. But go ask for oneness. But I'm not sure oneness is going to heal grandma of the cancer. It may not. But go ask for oneness. But I'm not sure that oneness is going to get me over this addiction. It may not. But go ask for oneness. 
Isn't that exactly what Jesus prayed for us in this last prayer? I would go so far as to say I believe he's still praying this for us. Here's what I base it on. Colossians 3.1. Listen to this. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That idea of seated at the right hand of God is kind of a, a Hebrew phrase that means present, constantly with. So my dog is always at my right hand when I come home. She doesn't leave me. She follows me everywhere. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, present to God at all times. Now my question is, what is he doing there? Because I don't think he's just simply sitting back, sipping on a glass of sweet tea because that's godly, he's southern. And I don't think he's just sitting there sipping on a glass of sweet tea. It was southern Israel, come on now, where he was born. Sitting, sipping on a glass of sweet tea and waiting for God to go, okay, it's time, go back. I don't think that's what he's doing. I believe he's still praying this same prayer. He is our intercessor before God. I have a picture of Jesus next to God at all times, whispering in his ear, desires for you. Interceding with the Father on our behalf, constantly seeking the same thing now that he sought for us in this high priestly prayer. I think he's standing there and he's going, Father, look. Look, Father, there's one of the ones you gave me. Do you see him? It's Terry. Sunday morning. He's fumbling through another sermon. Will you just give him oneness? Will you just draw him deeper into us? Put me in him the same way you're in me. And put him in us the way I'm in you. Let him be with us as we are. And why does he want that so badly for me? Why is he constantly saying, this is what I want for you? Why does he want this so badly for all of us? Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Here's the punchline. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, let me ask you a question. When is the last time a church had a class on union with God as an evangelistic tool? Never. We try to give you the right words to say. We try to send you to far off countries, but we never say, be one with God before you go. Because if you are one with him, the world may believe that God sent him. This is an evangelism strategy. This is something that is on us to do so that the world will be saved. That's what this is. We step over it because it's inconvenient. You know why we step over it? Because there's too many people in too many churches that have been there too long that aren't seeking this. And if I don't have it, I can't tell you how to get it. And if I don't have it and I'm in charge and you get it, I look bad. That's why. This is all about union with God. That's what it's supposed to be. Union with God proves to the world that God sent Jesus and he is the king. And when we have that and live that, the lost will see that and be drawn to that. 
here's the discipline I want to invite you into over this season of Lent, which started last Wednesday. And my hope is it's not something that's new to you, but it changes radically how you do this. And it's simply prayer. Simply prayer. See, Lent began this last Wednesday. It was Ash Wednesday. Some of our Catholic friends went and got ashes. Some of our Lutheran friends went and got ashes. We took baths. But um, I want to invite you in spending this season of Lent, this season of prayer and repentance before God, to not just pray, to pray about the world and your circumstances, but I want to invite you into praying for unity with God, union in God, that your life would be in God the same way Jesus' life is in God, that Jesus would be in you the same way he is in God. I want to invite you into praying John 17, 21 for the next 40 days, not just in words, but in a heart set and an I-thou orientation towards God, coming to God as person, saying, what I need is you, not what you offer. I'm going to put a slide up that has this prayer on it, and you can take a picture of it if you'd like. But this is how I'd like for us to pray. You don't have to pray these exact words, but this mentality. Father, make us one with each other just as you are. God in the Son, and He is in you. Make me one with you and with all believers. I want to tell you uh, uh, something that happens here every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, right behind the stage in our prayer room. We have a time of prayer. And I want to invite you to join us. And I want to invite you to come for the next Wednesdays through Lent. Because here's what we're going to be seeking and focusing on. We're going to be focusing on union in God. Life in God, us in God, the way Christ is in God, and union with each other. And then there's one more thing I'm going to ask you to do today before we close this time. And you're going to be uncomfortable. And I'm sorry, I'm not sorry about that. I want us to take some time right now and pray for each other. I want to ask you to put aside any angst or self-consciousness or anything that might hold you back. And I'm going to ask you to stand. And then I'm going to ask you to just huddle up in groups around this room together, people sitting next to you, and just pray for union with God for each other, to pray that over each other. And if you're online in the chat room, pray those prayers in the chat over each other. You can pray out loud or you can pray in silence. It doesn't matter. But I think we can raise a sweet aroma of prayer before God. A prayer for oneness with Him, unity in Him, and oneness with the global church. We don't have to take turns to pray. You know, just pray everybody at the same time out loud. If you can't hear somebody, that's okay. They're not talking to you anyway. And if you don't have anybody to pray with at this time, I'm going to be down here, and I'd love for you to come pray for me and with me. And let me pray for you. But all I'm asking you to do, we can put that slide back up. Just simply as a group of people. Pray this. In this space. For each other. Pray this. For our children that are down in Treehouse. And our students who are upstairs. And the kids that aren't even here yet. 
for the church all over Sarnia, all over Canada, all over North America, all over the world, that this is what we would seek. That we would place ourselves before God and say, Lord, what I want is what Jesus wants for me. Help me to find that. And so I just want to invite you to stand right now. And just get in groups somewhere, wherever you are, and let's just pray this prayer. If you don't have anybody to pray with, come down here and find me. I'll, I'll be down here. You can pray for me, and I'd love to pray for you. Jesus, make all this one before you. Lead us into that place where you are, God, where we can be one with you and in you. And just, God, that's our longing, that's our desire. This oneness, God. Oneness for everyone in this room. Oneness for all those who would be in this room at some point. For our children that are down in Treehouse, Father, just draw them deep into yourself. For the hurt and the wounded and the lost in our community, Father, let them see that there's a place in you for them where we can all be in you as the sun is in you and you are in the sun Father lead us to a place of deep union union with each other because we're rooted in you let your global church become one let it rise up and invite those who don't know you into a place of union with you of oneness with you Father, your desire is that we would be one, that we would be in you as your Son is in you. Father, make that our desire too. Press that desire deep into each of our hearts, into the hearts of your people around the globe. Father, we know that in you is all that we could ever desire or long for, but also, God, you long for and desire that we would be yours in you. And so, Father, press that into us. Press us deeper into yourself, deeper into each other. Let no attitude or heart set or mentality stand as an obstacle between us being in you as persons. You as a person, us as person. Knowing that that's your greatest desire, that's your longing. And Father, we ask that, not just for ourselves, but the same way Jesus did for all those who will come after us, for our children and their children, God, that we would become people who press that into the lives and leave a legacy of union in you, of desire for that. We show people what it looks like in a way that helps them desire it and know how to seek it. And Father, as we seek that union and oneness with you over these next 40 days of Lent, do a work in each of our hearts where we can confidently say that your son plus nothing else is everything. That just in him we have all that we could long for, desire, or need. And we ask all this in his precious and holy name. Amen.